we're very close to $50 million raised. Um, and we're very close to having a lot of that could be in co-investments into Wisconsin only based companies, which is great. The rest will go into funds. As we know, the funds that we've targeted and what we've told our LPs, and it has stayed the same since day one is 20 to 30 different venture capital managers. Those that are focused on the future of Wisconsin, which I know sounds about as blanket as can be, but we do not actually construct the portfolio based on taking heavier bets in the managers in which we like more, right? We, that is not how we built fund one. We are managing um, the portfolio almost equally weighted where we can, regardless of fund size. Our larger funds have slightly larger checks, but they're not far and away different. You could do the math on, on what 40 million looks like to invest in 20 to 25 managers. Um, but really, we're trying to get our toehold into managers that have the same passion we do, that really want to work inside of Wisconsin. Well, well uh, Carrie and Grady, I've been really looking forward to this episode. I get a two for one special today, so I'm really excited mm -hmm. to talk to both of you guys. Uh, welcome to Limited Partner Podcast. Thank you. Thanks, David. Thanks so, for having us. It's a pleasure. So before we get into portfolio construction and other very sexy topics, uh, maybe we could take a minute, uh, Carrie and Grady, uh, to talk about your bio. Thank you, David. Uh, uh, Grady, I'll go first unless you want to. Uh, the simplest one-minute version is that I spent a career doing institutional investing, uh, selecting managers, and doing uh, all portfolio allocation and thought that I'd like to make a change and, and actually delve into one single asset class and, and move to the other side of the table and become an investor uh, myself. And my background, David, I mean, I joined Carrie's team, which I know she'll talk about, but Madison graduate, worked in Milwaukee, Chicago, back in Milwaukee, but spent time in Madison with Carrie at her endowment that she was running. Excellent. Well, Carrie, you spent 18 years at WARF, which stands for Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation. It's a very unique endowment style model with a tech transfer hybrid. What exactly is WARF and, and what does WARF do? Thanks, David. WARF, actually, the way I like to describe it is WARF is one of the University of Wisconsin-Madison's strongest partners in technology commercialization and, and the supportive groundbreaking research that happens there. Uh, it was founded 90 years plus ago. I don't even, I lost track of what it was. Uh, but it, it's maintained this partnership with the university while also maintaining independence from the university, um, which has always there to been part of the secret sauce. So the, the independence that they have is what has allowed it to build this large and, and impactful endowment that is safe from, I don't know how you do, you know, I don't want to say safe from government, but it, it's safe from, you know, governments and state governments, which have budget constraints and then they look for money. And so had that money been part of the state and had work been founded and, and part of the university, it is unlikely they would have ever been able to, to build the endowment that they, that they have. What are some political considerations that you guys were able to avoid? Well, if it's state money, then when they have a budget shortfall and they're looking for how do we fill this this budget, they will go and they will take capital from wherever they can kind of find it. And I, and I think over history, you would not have had the ability to keep this money segregated and use it in the way they did, which was very um, decidedly to support additional research and the commercialization of technology from campus. It always seems like those budget cuts come uh, inversely proportional to when they should come. You have bull markets and you're overspending and uh, nobody's cutting budget then. Then you have bear markets, you have critical research, and, and it's always underfunded. So you spend 18 years at Wharf. Uh, what do you wish you knew in the first year that you learned over 18 years? 
Yeah, my lord. I love this question. I was thinking about it last night while while flying back to Madison, and after thinking through all my careful answers, uh, David, my my initial answer was, "God, everything." I wish I knew everything when I when I started, uh, because when I think about what a, 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 I think, if you listen to the the first answer, the first question, you can see how impactful something like a wharf can be, and if you knew it, you could be impactful right away. You know, it's pretty it's pretty interesting. So. To give a more specific answer there for you, uh, and given where we ended up, I'd say I really wish what I understood at the time was the importance of startups and fostering the startup culture at a faster pace than we did at Warp. I wish I'd have known that in day one, um, that that building out the networks, developing our muscles in, in that particular area, probably we could have done a, a lot more. So we basically had these $10 million allocations we used to, to just keep re-upping to put into to startups from campus. It probably would have been better to put a, a really big uh, allocation of $50 million to, to maybe not run it as a co-investment program, but to have gone out on our own and help these companies. Because if they had to get to a co-investor, some of them basically never honestly ever made it there to build the relationships with the venture funds that were relevant to campus tech faster. So that's one of the things I would have done. I wish I'd understood. Uh, you talked a little bit in the question, the the complexity of, of how hard it is to actually get technology off a of campus that's as large and, and quite honestly as bureaucratic as, as these big land grant Midwestern universities are. Um, and then the last thing I really would have been great to have had, you know, the grasp of was uh, everything I ultimately learned about portfolio management, manager selection, uh, portfolio construction, team building. As I started with everything, um, I really wish I just had had everything when I started with such a wonderful asset to work with. When you come in and you you mentor the next generation, what is it that you teach people about portfolio constructions, about manager selection? What are some of those nuggets that you that you bring to next generation? Grady maybe could be a, a great person to ask because I think of, of having mentored him when he came in, he had really done manager selection, but is probably taking a holistic view about everything you're doing. What is the organization you're working for? What is their objective? Uh, what are you trying to do with a particular asset allocation? And then, and Grady hears me say this all the time, but it, it, it's it's so simple yet so true. Does the whole story hang together? So if a group is investing in, in, you know, whether it be a hedge fund or a real estate fund, is the group of people that are investing in that particular asset, are they the appropriate people to do it? Have they really found something that can generate a return that's outsized more than just sort of getting a market return and, and kind of getting it passively? Um, and does everything hang together? And if that full story is complete and it's consistent with what you're trying to do at your organization, then you've probably found a manager that you can build a long-term relationship with. David, to kind of pile on to what Carrie just said, as as one of the, you know, quote unquote students here uh, on a small team, it's hire very independent, smart people that can kind of work with Carrie and understand the big picture. But the best thing that she did, at least for me, was that holistic approach. Like, here's the portfolio. Here's where it is. Here's venture. It's one piece of the portfolio. Um, here's how the rest of it kind of hangs together based on what Wharf wants, based on who the one investor that we support is interested in. And then how the team comes together, how to integrate with the team, whether it be on the hedge fund side, venture side, the accounting side we had. Um, because you're living at the CIO level with her, making sure that she kind of teaches everybody, like, here's how the reporting works. Here's how the investment committee works. Here's why the portfolio looks the way it does. 
and then giving us the autonomy to kind of work through the construction under those limits. What are the limitations at the CIO role, right? So you always have to, as any manager of any organization, you have to balance getting getting the right things done with with letting talent develop. How are you able to effectuate change from the CIO seat? I'd say sometimes you have limitations of your organization and then just sort of the structures you have to go through investment committees and things that will be approved. So sometimes you can find yourself with really nice products that you know you probably can't get through your process. So so those are some of the limitations. Uh, on the flip side, I guess, with the team, some of the limitations are, frankly, you know, you have a small team, um, so you can't always do everything you want. Um, with like maybe I wanted you go here and do we talked a little bit about the startups uh, in in what I we didn't have a venture you know sort of team built up so you'd have to build that venture team and you would have had to convince um, a group of people that we needed to to build out a, a venture capital muscle and I don't know that we could have done that at the time I don't know if we could have recruited someone into a nonprofit to do venture I think that was always one of the things that we struggled with that. So much of venture capital and investing is based on financial rewards and that you want everyone aligned with, here's what we're trying to do. And if you're inside a nonprofit, it's very hard to do period interest. So you can't do that. There's so many great GP roles out there. And the LP role historically has not been the highest rewarding one. Have you been able to compete in this hyper competitive market and, and, and compete for talent? Did you mean at Wharf, David, or at Wharf and, then, and, then t- and then today again, yeah, today and NVNG? Both. Uh, it's, it, well, today at NBNG, we're, we're navigating that finally right now. So we're, we're actually in the market um, to, to bring associate on. Uh, you know, whether you, there, there's two different mindsets. So when we were raising this fund, a lot of folks asked, like, why wasn't I, I investing? Um, why wasn't we raising a, a direct fund? But that's not where my skill set and talent lie. And it's honestly not where my passion lies. I love building portfolios. I love the manager selection piece. I, I'm not going to help be, you know, I'm not going to be as effective building a company. And, and that's not where, where I grew up. I have degrees in finance and, and portfolio construction. Um, so what you look for is someone who also has that same passion. If someone really wants to be a venture capitalist, it will not be a fit because they'll be frustrated because they won't want to deal with the different higher level aspects of, of reporting to investors. I love sitting in this place and delivering capital to people who can really make things happen. In, in VC, you have the same thing. You have operators turned VCs that get really frustrated. Uh, and a lot of it is about self-awareness. Grady, what, what makes you attracted to, to being an LP versus being a GP? What are the pros and cons of the two positions? Yeah, so I, I mean, I got my first foray into what LPs, what GPs were when I was at Northern Trust in Chicago. Wharf happened to be one of my clients because they're like, oh, Grady, you went to Madison. That, that, that is the story. And so I was very fortunate to be like kind of thrown into that role, um, knew enough about the portfolio to, to get the analyst job there. And so I came into a very well-built team at Wharf when I was in the venture portfolio. I tried to start a company. Um, I went through an accelerator program. Uh, the startup founder part of this uh, is not in me, really, uh, despite the fact we started NBNG and that was its own process. But I think it's because we've been through this. Like Carrie said, at the allocation level, right, working with the committees, understanding the portfolios and constructing it appropriately, me sitting in the LPC, just kind of picking venture managers, understanding which GPs make sense. It's it's a lot more qualitative having started on hedge funds where, you know, you're working in the zero sum game, venture capital. What I was attracted to is 
really, how do these managers differentiate themselves? You talk to 800 of them, they all kind of sound great, right? Or they all sound the same. And so where are the outliers? So for me personally, I, I don't, I don't think I'm built for the zero to one. The zero, so I don't, I don't think the idea is going to come from me, but I think what Carrie and I are very good at, and even having built it at Wharf is how do we use the strategic aspects of what GPs can do, what the founders that we have in our market, and how do we connect all of this together? So speaking of, of picking GPs, so you started at Wharf, you initially started uh, on the hedge fund side, and then you went over to venture side and you inherited a book of 50 managers, roughly three to 350 million. Tell me about that transition. Yes, started on the hedge fund side. So I was hired as the analyst at Wharf to help with performance, run the reports that Carrie needs for the investment committee and kind of support the team holistically. So she had it well broken out by asset class, certain portfolios had different managers and our hedge fund piece was rather large, right? So we needed some help on that. Um, we had a really talented PM running that strategy and just having an analyst kind of work into a portfolio, hedge funds was where the need was at the time. I'm much more attracted to venture. I'm much more attracted to the startup founders that are building cool things, the future of innovation. Um, I understand the algorithm side of things and, and how we're hiring and firing hedge funds, but venture, long-term buy and hold kind of strategy here, what's going to change the world. Um, and I got, again, pretty lucky. Uh, Carrie hired a very good team. They're very marketable, two of the PA, PMs on the private equity and venture portfolio ended up leaving, going to bigger and badder places. And so there was an opening. And so how can I kind of fit in? Um, we brought in another individual to help with that portfolio as well. Uh, and so that just seemed like a natural fit to what I wanted to do. And luckily I was on the team that said, yep, just go do it. So it's a combination of being at the right place, right time and, and being self-aware and, and, and really chasing your passion. You had 30, uh, 30 of your 50 fund relationships for VCs. Tell me about that book when you inherited it. And what was your first kind of learnings from, from that uh, legacy book? I learned, and, and Carrie knows this, obviously, Worf's been in venture capital since the 1970s, right? It's been rooted in that DNA of, of this entity, having been around for, what you say, 90, 100 years. So they've always had this kind of mindset around how do we get venture capital within the portfolio, long-term hold strategy. But then when, when I started looking at the portfolio and even right before me is we have a lot of biotech funds. We have a lot of heavy hitters when it comes to who's hunting in certain smaller markets. But what does Madison really need is we need the ties to the venture firms, not just the returns that they're giving to the endowment. So biggest learning for me inheriting that portfolio is how do we use it strategically? Like, how do we actually get these funds to Madison? How do we start investing in funds that have kind of come up the ranks that weren't really ready for us on the institutional side, but now they are. Now there's flights to Madison. The world's opening back up. Like, how do we, how do we get some of these strategic use cases funneling through campus? The strategic uh, imperative of bringing uh, companies, to, bringing venture funds to Madison, that sounds great. But it obviously in some way, in some level, conflicts with the pure alpha uh, you know, a profit seeking. How did you balance those? And, and were, were there ever cases where strategy won over uh, profit maximization? I don't think we ever gave up uh, or sacrificed return for what we were doing. Um, what we had realized was that venture was really, you know, so if you look at like uh, the flagship, for instance, 
there had been someone who joined flagship that had gotten a PhD at, at Madison, and they were on campus trying to locate some technology. And then this is my understanding of the story, because it was actually one of uh, Greeny's predecessors, as he said, people tended to kind of come in, hit their, like, we didn't have another position for them, they'd go to something better. Uh, the person had ultimately, uh, through our licensing operation, made it over to, to, to Craig. And from there, what they realized was that at Flagship, they could, if they wanted to navigate Madison, it was probably great to do it through someone like Warp, which was the tech transfer office that had all these relationships. And so I think that might have been one of our first, like, really tangible, we can use this venture portfolio for more than just the returns. We can use it to build relationships. And people that had portfolios, and it wasn't that we could get into Flagship now just because of that. But it opened a door and it differentiated us and we were no longer, We, of course, we had this portfolio that would make nice allocations and continue to be there year in and year out if you if you did what you said. But also we offered a uh, different like peek into a university in a place that was largely under sort of ventured, if you will. There weren't a lot of people looking and you could find maybe unique opportunities there. When you talk about how the book changed for Grady over time before it really had been just purely financial. And then it moved to financial plus. How do we marry it up to the strengths of campus? And let's bring these two things together. Uh, absolutely. I think strategic investment could go both ways. We interviewed the CIO of University of Miami, and he's really leveraging the fact that he's in Miami. And so many of the top managers have moved to Miami. So it, it, it splits both ways. But going back to, to Wharf, Grady, uh, in terms of your investment criteria, how, how did you uh, build out your book after you took it over? Sure. Well... Well, again, it's a pretty well-built book. Um, I won't go through the names that are in that portfolio, and it's still managed uh, over at Wharf um, by an individual. So still managing these relationships is obviously very important to that to that entity and always has been well before I was there. Um, and, and like I said, we didn't we wouldn't churn through managers so so much. I mean, we had a well-built portfolio, and again, this is an asset class, as you know, David. We're not we're not letting go of one of these funds and trying to sneak our way back in. It just wouldn't really happen that way. So some of our legacy kind of managers would be in the portfolio. The newer ones that I that I did right kind of at, right before we left, even before we knew we were going to leave as smaller managers. I did a Minnesota-based manager, and then we did one in Chicago that were what I would deem emerging-ish, um, probably in the eyes of our investment committee. Roman numerals were a little bit higher, but still emerging-ish, right? Midwest managers. And so to your question, David, on foregoing returns is we never expected to forego returns um, and, and never really thought that we would. I'd add in David as well. There was a, a, a predecessor to, to Grady who, uh, John McCauley, went off to the Cleveland Clinic and he's over at the Mott Foundation now. Uh, for a while, John had had effort to, and, and he got us into True Ventures. And, and he was really all about trying to get to top tier I'd say we actually stepped a little bit away from that and kind of became more about how do we develop our ecosystem, the Midwest. And so then the, the, we moved away from trying to chase allocations from name brand fonts and, and sort of embraced more of a concept that really was for us developing the local ecosystem was good for the local communities because you needed a healthy startup. Uh, you need healthy startups around where you are. You definitely need that if you're trying to move technology from a campus. And again, going back to Wharf, the whole purpose of Wharf was to advance the research to benefit humankind. That's in its mission. And so when we're talking about what we're doing, 
there's a reason why we want to see the local ecosystem in venture capital be getting stronger and better. And, and maybe you're not going to start with what VC is in Madison. We did actually work with the state pension fund and, and Chris Giacomo to, to create a venture fund in Madison. But it was all about how do we turn our attention to helping everything that's around us help us do our job better. So, Grady, in terms of uh, managing your book, we had Joshua Berkowitz came in. He talked about kind of deploying over many years and really decades. How did you manage the illiquidity nature of, of harvesting and deploying into the venture asset class? Yeah, well, I think uh, having listened to the podcast, David, I think he's absolutely right. Like we're not parachuters into this asset class like that. that we are long-term buy and hold investors. Even with NBNG, we're investing in firms, not just one fund, right? Pretty simply. I mean, we use a model. Wharf has a model. Um, we have API plugins that would tell us when our funds are doing certain things. You mentioned API. Are these outside sources? We would have plugins to Burgess or Private Eye is what it's called, which is just mm-hmm. basically maintaining a portfolio, kind of an additional check for what we were doing internally. We also had uh, me there running performance holistically on the portfolio. So understanding what the venture asset class was doing. We also worked with Northern Trust, obviously, as the custodian. And so having all of these kind of different checks and balances, whereas venture, as you know, it takes like 10 years to actually get accurate numbers. I have to ask, uh, how accurate were your models and uh, what was your biggest error rate and and anything else you could tell us in terms of, uh, you know, trying to prognosticate the future? We didn't really model this stuff out. It wasn't that. We had the numbers, but it, it didn't need to be that detailed, actually, David. So mm-hmm. if you look, step back to what Worf is, we ran a very complex portfolio. We used an alpha overlay. Uh, we used leverage, but it was highly liquid. So the cash, having the ability to fund something, is, as Grady said earlier, it was a long-term portfolio. So it was mature. There was always distributions. That wasn't really a problem that we had. And the other part to remember is Wharf was an operating entity. So we had a business. We were getting royalty revenues. And, and for a lot of the early years that I was there, there was a lot of cash flow flowing into our portfolios. So as far as liquidity, when we ran the portfolio the way we ran it, we wanted an equity beta exposure. And private equity and venture capital was part of that. So that would just flex up and down. And as we got too high in the equity exposure, we would cut back the public. And, and, and maintain a certain level of the equity risk premium. So it wasn't so much that we had to manage tightly what, what our liquidity was, because we had the gift, if you will, of, of the ability of, of not really having to worry about it. So you're getting me really excited. These are very exciting topics. Uh, so <laughs> essentially what, <laughs> what, what you're doing is you are basically, you had a range, let's say 10 to 15% venture, and if the market had less, less liquidity than expected, you would go back to that target. Is that a fair, fair explanation? Yeah, we used to manage the portfolio um, based on risk. We, we budgeted by risk. We used a risk budget and there was certain risk premiums that we had. And so the idea was to keep that balance and that that's how we would flex it as we needed to. Would you always have to sell or were you able to borrow against that? We used a lot of derivatives, so it was super easy. So the most part, we would just sell some futures contracts if we needed to. Uh, and, and the active management piece on that side was largely via a hedge fund overlay. So the, the trick was balancing the beta exposures against the alpha portfolio to make sure that those two didn't get out of whack. Uh, and you mentioned this derivative. You have one of the most fascinating. You have an all-weather approach that, that you used at, at Wharf. Tell me what that's about. Sure. 
uh, that I inherited, if you will, look at that uh, kudos to Tom Weaver when he came in and joined us as the chief investment officer and I was a deputy, I got to learn at his elbow. Um, Bridgewater's all-weather approach is pretty simply about achieving true diversification in, in an investment portfolio. And the concept was building on the understand was built on understanding why assets move together. So everybody, you know, will calculate what are the correlations. Well, sometimes things are correlated very highly, and sometimes they're not correlated at all. And so, what you really want to try to understand is why is that happening. So then, if you take this a step further, you want to use this technique for all of the products available to our, our, our you can use them to build these really highly efficient portfolios. Uh, so you could take a low risk asset like government bonds, apply some leverage and make it more comparable because if you base your asset allocation on just capital, you could never get enough bonds in your portfolio um, to get the return. You had a return trade off that you had to make. So by using judiciously using some leverage and, and we did that via swaps or futures, you were able to make a government bond maybe have, I think we had a vol of like 9% on it versus a three. And now it's a little more comparable to, to an equity and get the same return with less downside risk. And so now if you're a fund that has a hundred year history, over time, that means that you don't you don't trade off any of your return, but with less downside risk, you compound at a higher rate of, of return over time. And that's was sort of the beauty of the all weather. Is a simple way to explain that that you basically turned a bond into another type of equity with the same volatility, but non non correlated to the equity? That is a great way to put it. And, and sometimes it will be not correlated and sometimes it'll be correlated. So sometimes you'll get hammered. Um, that, that can happen when they both move together at the downward. But the idea is you're a little more diversified than if you're just holding pure equity exposure. It goes back to uh, my own personal portfolio. Uh, little did I know that uh, stocks, uh, stocks and biotech and venture and crypto <laughs> and every risky asset was uh, at such a high correlation. So lesson learned. Uh, so we finally go on to NVNG, uh, your, your new, what I would call startup, uh, but your new fund. Um, so after Wharf, uh, you started NVNG. So Carrie, why did you, why did you start NVNG? I'm going to pump this one over to Grady because I'd say, why did I start this NBNG is because Grady convinced me to do it. And so I'll let him just explain how he convinced me to do this. Yeah, I'm good at sales, David. So next question. Uh, no, but uh, we, I mean, uh, where we came, like you told, you, you made us tell the story nicely here as to why we are passionate about venture, why we use in the portfolio, the strategic needs of it. We had one investor, right? That's the university, that's campus. That that was what we were responsible for. And that, that was how we allocated and how we constructed that portfolio. We looked around, I mean, post the exits from Wharf, it's like, well, what, sh what should we do? Like, that was like the legitimate answer. Carrie, obviously CIO of 15 years, whatever, like could, could do anything. Um, do you wanna go work through investment committees again? Are we gonna do the same reporting or should we do our own thing? Um, and the reason why I think we're built for this is because you look at, neighboring states that have had similar programs, friends, Chris and Jeff over at Renaissance in Michigan, Centrifuge has a nice program, HX is down in Houston. These are fund of funds backed by local investors and large corporations that care about changing a little bit about place, but they care about the venture capital asset class, the exposure to it, what it can do for them as corporations in their community. And I mean, what better kind of segue for us than to start the asset management firm with the first product being a venture capital fund of funds and just trying to build almost the exact same share that exists in other markets. Those groups have been very friendly with us, helped us like talking through kind of their, their pros and cons of what they're doing. And so we've been able to learn a lot through them. From my perspective, David, saw a need 
and I saw the challenge and uh, what the hell, why not? Let's give this a try. Speaking of a challenge, uh, you you had to raise a fund one during COVID, but how, how, how did you go about raising a fund one or virtually? As you noted, David, we, we pulled together, you know, incorporated the fund and not the fund, the firm, November of 2019. Our plan was to go live and start fundraising in March of 2020. Uh, as the world shut down, that obviously put us on pause. But then, you know, this incredible thing called Zoom <laughs> showed up. So around June 2020, we we decided to go ahead with the fund and try to launch. Uh, so when we when we looked at this and we're doing our planning, we were trying to come at this again, as, as we've said a few times from the strategic angle. So for having relationships in the community, I'd say we had about 25% of our network was built out, but we knew we needed to build about 75% of it because my world was institutional investing and it was largely outside of Wisconsin. So we had a nice core of 25% of maybe the people we needed to know and talk to. And we frankly just started there. And I've learned a lot from Greedy, honestly, about just networking and reaching out and calling people. And that is what we did. Um, so we just kind of kept uh, telling the story about you should be involved in venture. There's this group over in, in Michigan, Renaissance. Look what they were doing for their community. They're growing their local innovation ecosystems. So we got a couple investors to agree. That got us more investors, and we slowly just sort of built out the fund uh, piece by piece by piece because we'd had 20 years of venture capital fund manager selection experience. And if you're trying to raise money from people who aren't institutional investors, if you will, that's say you have to have three funds, they gave us credit for being good investors and really were only worried about could we build the office. Some LPs will say we invest in fund ones, but we won't invest in first time investors, which is a big, big differentiation. A lot of people don't don't grasp. Uh, so in, ter in terms of you, you had a very, I think, astute strategy, which is look for investors that didn't care that you were a fund one. And how did you go about building that coalition of investors early on? We were able to build a coalition because we were looking for people that also wanted to build the community. We talked about Wharf being, you know, uh, close to 100 years old. There's a lot of 100-year-old companies in Wisconsin. And so they've been here a long time. How do they continue to remain relevant and attract talent to them when there might be the more sexy company coming along? So we were able to just go to them and talk to them about venture capital and what could that, that could bring to them. Uniquely, David, I would say, obviously, you know, we're backed by corporations, right? And we're backed by many yeah. of ours in the local community that they haven't really played in venture and they haven't dabbled solid M&A departments working with larger companies, but haven't really seen the startup market. And so I think we did everything correctly in order to get the corporations to feel comfortable with us as investors as a fund one. But we were after a unique group, like Carrie said, a group that that needs to start moving venture faster here, no matter what the time or the market looked like. Um, and I think we were fortunate to find the right corporations that took a stance on us and funding. How, how did you how did you build that urgency? You know, corporations are by by nature almost conservative. How did you how did you keep them from saying, "Well, that's cool"? You know, hit us back from fund fund two, fund three. Our partners, honestly, David, helped us build it into it. So when we got people like Exact Sciences to sign on, and and the state pension fund, and then and then Baird looked at it, they helped us uh, create this sense of we need to do this and we need to do this now. And I think the the world sort of helps too. So, uh, what is your portfolio construction? How many funds, and what is your typical check size? 
So right now, David, we're at, we're very close to fifty million dollars raised, um, and we're very close to having a lot of that could be in co investments into Wisconsin only based companies, which is great. The rest will go into funds, as we know. The funds that we've targeted and what we've told our LPs, and it has stayed the same since day one, is twenty to thirty different venture capital managers. Those that are focused on the future of Wisconsin, which I know sounds about as blanket as can be, but we do not actually construct the portfolio based on taking heavier bets in the managers in which we like more, right? We, that is not how we built fund one. We are managing um, the portfolio almost equally weighted where we can, regardless of fund size. Our larger funds have slightly larger checks, but they're not far and away different. You could do the math on, on what 40 million looks like to invest in 20 to 25 managers. Um, but really, we're trying to get our toehold into managers that have the same passion we do, that really want to work inside of Wisconsin. Um, they see it as an untapped market, or they have portfolio companies that can align with, just like Carrie said, not just the wharfs of the world, but all of our other 100-year institutions that are here trying to focus on new and emerging technologies. I know you have a pocket for emerging managers. How do you look at emerging managers, and how do you assess emerging manager quality? So we talked about this right before we hopped on, actually, and I think our our response is when we look at emerging managers, which boxes aren't they checking today that we are okay with them not having checked? Like the, it's 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 as simple as that, and it gets very nuanced. But we know where they're gonna not look like the sequoias of the world, right? Like they're not all going to look like that. And so which which boxes? Like I said, is it team, sole GP? Is it things that we'd like to see? Which ones aren't they checking today that we're okay with based on their strategy or where these GPs came from or where the portfolio that they've already invested into is looking? Um, but we have about 20% reserve, David, for emerging managers. I think we've done three or four out of that 13 so far already. Well, Carrie and Grady, this has been uh, one of my most enjoyable interviews. And uh, th- thank you for for sharing so much. Uh, well, what would you like our audience to know about you, about NVNG, and anything else you'd like to uh, shine a light on? I'd like to do um, a plug for a, a post, a blog post I wrote on our web because I think it's sort of the unspoken, uh, the, the hedge fund. Like, why do people dislike a hedge fund, the fund of funds? Why do people dislike the fund of funds? And what I'd love people to understand is that uh, going back to my, when you're chief investment officer, your goal is to build a portfolio that hits your objectives. And you look at asset classes and there are different ways you can access asset classes. And honestly, sometimes a fund of funds is the appropriate vehicle to use because your other choice is truly to either do it very badly and, and pay a very bad big premium for doing it badly. You're paying a big price or not have the exposure. So what I encourage people to do is think about a fund of funds, not so much as just something that's all about different layers of fees, but it's an access vehicle to get you exposure to something you need. Because we can all go out and pick any manager and, and fire money into it. The, the trick in some of these asset classes and venture in particular is that you want to find sort of, you know, you have to sit through 6,000 managers. And sometimes that if you don't have a team for it, sort of maybe, I don't want to say it's ego, but set aside like the need to do everything yourself and seek help from others and partner where partnering makes sense. And that's how we look at it. We think of ourselves as a partner to to our investors. And and I would just encourage and, and wanted to talk about that. Fund of funds, not necessarily bad, not for everyone, not for every asset class, but we think it's an ideal one for venture because we think nothing, NVNG is nothing ventured, nothing gained. Our whole premise is that venture should be in everyone's portfolio and we're trying to make that possible. 
I think venture capital in terms of it's a hit driven business. So you need a big enough portfolio in order to capture the power law. If you're not investing in at least 50 underlying companies, there's a very big chance that you're not going to have any outperformers. And once you get to 500 companies, which is about you know, 15, 20 funds, which a lot of people with minimums can't access, then you start to get those really, you know, the next Uber, the next Facebook, and then that's where it really gets really interesting. So I think fund of funds is a great way to invest and access that asset class, unless you have billions of dollars to deploy into the asset class. So uh, Carrie and Grady, this has been really enjoyable. I really appreciate it. I look forward to meeting in Madison or New York or wherever we might be across the globe. By popular demand, the 10X Capital Podcast has officially launched our newsletter powered by Carrier Labs, a full-service content marketing firm that's partnering with us on the newsletter. In our weekly newsletter, we will keep you updated on all things emerging managers and limited partners, including industry trends that are critical to know as an LP, VC, or founder. To subscribe to our totally free newsletter, please visit 10xcapitalpodcast.com. Again, that's 10xcapitalpodcast.com. We thank you for your support.